Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are. We had a huge snowstorm here this past weekend, but now all the snow is melting away and it's sunny. So as much as I enjoy snow in the winter, I'm okay with that. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation I had with Jennifer Dybel. Jennifer writes stories that explore home through the lens of faith, family, and culture with the beauty and depth of Ireland coloring much of it. So last year, I talked to Jen about her debut novel, and this year we're talking about her second novel. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jennifer Dybel. Jen, thank you for joining me on the show again. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. Yeah. Last year, you came on Historical Fiction Unpacked to talk about your debut novel, A Dance in Donegal. Um, And today, we'll be talking about your second book, The Lady of Galway Manor, which released in February. Can you tell me about this new book? I am so excited about this new book. Um, I've been absolutely enamored with the story from the first moment that it kind of popped into my head. So The Lady of Galway Manor follows the story of Annabeth DeLacy, who um, is from England, but her father has just been um, assigned as the new landlord of Galway County or Galway Parish um, Mm. in 1921. And without all the trappings of the court, she's very bored and she, she has an eye for design. She helped a lot with their decorating at home and things like that. So she manages to finagle um, this apprenticeship with um, the ancestors of the man who created the clotter ring, which she had never seen before, but she'd heard tales about how it had come from this village. And so she just had to see it. Um, And as she's coming over, she's very excited because she's always grown up hearing about how barbaric the Irish are and how much they lack civilization and just how much help they need to sort of become real humans, basically. And so she's very (laughs) excited to come help them. But then when she gets there, she sees all this beauty and culture. Their architecture is amazing. The intricacy of the designs of the ring itself and all the different ways that they can incorporate the Clotta symbol in so many different ways. And she starts to think, well, surely if, if they were this uncivilized, would they even be able to accomplish this? And so she's from almost the first day, she's having to sort of deconstruct all these things that she thought were true about the Irish. And meanwhile, the man she's been paired with Stephen Jennings, he um, no longer believes in love. He's been burned one too many times. And he, the only thing he's ever experienced at the hands of the British is cruelty and death and violence. And so when his father introduces him to Annabeth, Um, he is just can't believe that his father, one had apprenticed him to a woman, but secondly, that it was a British woman, um, and a British lady of the court. Like he thinks his father's finally lost his mind and he hadn't told his father that he had actually been accepted for his own apprenticeship on, um, the mainland of Europe, uh, because he's trying to escape this legend of love, loyalty, and friendship and having to just peddle this lie of love over and over day in day out in the shop. And so now he's stuck, he can't leave yet. And so the two of them are having to try to figure out how to make it in this world where they've been thrust together with basically their enemy. Um, So it just kind of, and, and the theme of love, loyalty and friendship is sort of woven throughout the story. And 
Um, mm-hmm. Lots of crazy things happen. So um, I had a lot of fun writing this one. Yeah, it's fascinating. And um, putting those two such different um, cultures together, mm-hmm. they're so um, opposed to each other. It's so yes. interesting. So as you mentioned, it's 1921. And in Galway, Ireland. So what drew you to that particular place and period in time? So we had actually lived in County Galway for about four years. We lived about 30 minutes west of Galway City. So we were out in a rural area in the Irish speaking area. Our son was actually born in Galway City. Um, And part of our job when we were there, well, our job when we were there was to take tour groups around and kind of show them the authentic Ireland. Our, our sort of unofficial tagline was, we don't do Blarney. So we were trying to give, get them exposed to the language, to the music, to the real, and get beyond the whole top of the morning to you. So we spent a lot of time in Clotta Shop and in Shop Street mm-hmm. on Galway and in the pubs for um, traditional music sessions and um, just exploring the history of that city. And it's it's a truly magical city. I mean, you could say that about just about anywhere in Ireland, but there's something about Galway. It's the city of music is is kind of its nickname in, in the island. So um, I was just really inspired by the time that we got to spend there and just the little peeks into their history that I got to experience firsthand. And that just kind of um, went from there. Now, I know we talked about this last time you were on, and I forget exactly. How long did you live in Galway or Galway County? Um, In Galway, we were there about four years. Okay. And then did you live in a different part of Ireland as well? We did. We spent about two years in Donegal when we very first started that whole, whole journey. Right. So you're just writing about the places you've lived now, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's great that you had such like, close experience with this place that's yeah it was it was amazing and I didn't like set out when we moved there okay I'm gonna do research for books like right you know the the idea for the first book didn't come to me until after we'd left and then Mm -hmm. the idea for this book didn't come to me until again many years after we'd left so um, but just getting to immerse ourselves in their culture and their language and everything for you know close to a decade was just um really a blessing and something that, that I'll always be grateful for. Yeah. What gave you the idea to throw a British lady into Galway? Because I mean, it makes me think of Downton Abbey, not that they went to Galway, but you know, 1920s. And, yes. You know. I, you know, it's so funny. I had actually started writing this book and I, I'm one of those people and I, I sort of hate this about myself, but when, when there's a, something that's super, super popular in pop culture, I'm like, ugh, no, I don't want anything. <laughs> so that's how I was with Downton Abbey. I didn't watch it when it was first on and everyone was like all into it. And I'm like, no, yeah. you know. So I was actually in the middle of writing this book when I watched oh, Downton Abbey for the first time. And I just, of course, Tom and Sybil are my absolute favorite characters in the whole thing. Yes. Other than Lord Grantham's dog. But um, I just... <laughs> gravitate to their story. And it, it kind of gave me a little bit of validation, like, okay, yes, like, it would be very rocky. And, you know, um, and I wanted I was looking for some natural tension, you know, with the first book, it was an American girl coming over. And so I wanted to kind of shake it up a little bit and think about like, 
and I just sort of, ha- I wonder what would happen if, and just started playing around with some of those ideas. And, and a lot of people don't know that in the 1920s, there still were British landlords um, overseeing the Republic of Ireland. Of course, it wasn't called the Republic then, but um, right. that was sort of like, of course, um, Lord de Lacey is fictional. Um, I have really no idea about a whole lot about who actually was the landlord at that time. But yeah. in history, Lord de Lacey would have been the last Lord because at that point, then they were in their fight for independence, which also comes into play throughout the story as well. Um, mm. When some crazy things happen uh, with the Irish rebels and um, British military and things like that, because they're right near where I placed the shop. I fiddled with some of the, the accuracies of location a little bit, but right at the um, southern end of Galway City is um, military barracks where the British military was stationed during um, during all of that. And that that was actually true. I just sort of played around with where the shop actually is located just for my own ease of writing. But um, right. But yeah, so it, it really was fascinating to try and explore what uh, what that might have been like. Yeah, it is so interesting. Now you mentioned already that the one of the main threads in this story is the um, Clawdaw ring, the legend. Mm-hmm. Can can you tell us a little more about the history behind that? Sure. So the man who um, created his name was Richard Joyce. And so in the book, just to protect, you know, the innocent, <laughs> I, I changed them to Jennings. So I wanted to keep it as close as I could without, you know, risking stealing anything that wasn't mine to use. But um, so Richard uh, Joyce was um, kidnapped back in the 17th century by Moorish pirates. And he was sold uh, to a Moorish um, goldsmith as a slave. And so he worked for him for a very long time um, and became very, very skilled at his craft. Um, so much so that he, that the, his master ended up kind of seeing him on the same level with himself. But, um, poor Richard, when he was taken, left behind his one true love. And so while he was in captivity, he came up with this idea for this design that represents love, loyalty, and friendship. And for those who aren't familiar with what the Clada design is, it's a heart and it's held on both sides by a hand. And then on top of the heart is a crown. And the mm-hmm. heart represents love, the hands, uh, friendship, and the crown loyalty. And mm-hmm. he created this ring and kept it. And eventually, um, there was some sort of treaty between um, their governments. And he was freed. And his master actually wanted him to stay on um, And he wanted him to stay on so badly that he actually offered his own daughter's hand in marriage. But poor Mm. Richard was so lovesick, he wanted to go home to his one true love. And so he went back and as fate would have it, she had waited for him. And so he presented her with this ring and they wed and um, his family, he set up his own um, jewelry smithing shop in Galway City. The Clotta is an area in Galway City. And so that's where the name came from. And okay. his his ancestors to this day still run the Clotta Jewelry Shop in Galway City. Wow, that's amazing. So does this thread of love, loyalty, and friendship kind of go through the book as well? It does. And it, it goes on several levels because you have Stephen and his father Seamus um, 
Stephen's mother died um, when he was born um, in childbirth. And so right. it's been him and his father um, for a, for several years now. And so we, we see it throughout their friendship. We see it as Annabeth struggles to find her place as a um, woman of the court in a place like Ireland and with her family now. And there's all sorts of things that happen with her family and expectations that are put on her and things like that. And she's trying to figure all that out. And then also with Annabeth and Stephen together, um, and then with the people of Galway, it, it sort of all interconnects. And But each character is also kind of in their own fight to either discover the true meaning of love, loyalty, and friendship, or to hold on to like the last vestiges of those things that they see sort of disappearing in their own lives. I see. Okay. So what, um, what lessons do you hope readers will take from this novel? I hope that they will be kind of challenged to see the way that they view the world. I think that's one of the biggest blessings of being able to spend any kind of time abroad is getting that glimpse of someone else's worldview. And, you know, there's a lot of themes in this story that I did not intentionally set out to put in there, but I was writing this story in the summer of 2020 when not only was the pandemic happening, but in America, we had all these riots and social justice things going on. And, you know, it was just complete God's timing for everything because you're looking at the struggle between the Irish and the British, and there's a whole lot of stereotypes that have to be examined, and many of them are broken down. And um, so if we could look at the way that we view the people in our lives and look at how we are are judging them and against judging ourselves, and are we willing to truly listen to what they have to say and understand that um, all are created um, in the image of God and all, you know, then deserve respect and dignity. And so just being willing to examine the way that you view the world and the people that are in it, um, would be probably my, my biggest prayer. Yeah, that's a worthy goal. So you have a teaching job and Mm. a busy, busy family, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I am just wondering, and I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but how do you manage a writing career on top of all that? Um, It seems like you write not only books, you write for some um, like online Mm -hmm. sources. Also, can you tell me about your process and how it fits into your typical day? Um, I, I feel like this is like the worst possible time for me to answer this question because I'm like, I, it's sort of the perfect storm these next two weeks for me. Um, really what it comes down to, um, and I don't, I wish I could remember who taught me this concept, but it's a concept of front burner, back burner. And Mm. so I've had to let go of the illusion of balance where all things are equal in attention and time and just really look at what needs my attention right this second. Um, and sometimes it does change minute by minute. Other times I can devote more, um, you know, bigger chunks of time. A lot of my writing gets done during natural school breaks. So I do a lot of things in the summer, a lot of things over Christmas break, spring break. Um, but then a lot of it also has to get done evenings and weekends. But then I also have to balance that and make sure that I'm not 
neglecting my family. You know, our son just started a soccer season. Our oldest daughter is the lead in her school musical, which all the performances are next week. And so just really praying for wisdom to figure out what needs my attention right this minute. Um, and it, it is yeah. really hard because teaching, you know, is an all encompassing job and, um, it really right. takes my energy, body, mind, and spirit, um, as does, you know, being in my family and, and raising my children and being a wife and all of that. Um, so I really, it's just by the grace of God that I can try and do it justice of what needs my attention. when. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So on a on a day that you teach, do you try to write that night at all? Or is it just like, no, that fits in other um, days? When it really not? depends on what's happening. You know, if I'm on deadline, like I got my edits back for book three at the end of last week. And I only have about a two week window for turnaround. And so pretty much every night um, for the next two weeks, I'll be working on writing stuff. Um, if I'm not like, on imminent deadline, it kind of depends on on what's going on. Some nights I just physically, mentally can't. Um, other right. times I meet twice a month with a local writers group, and we'll go and we meet at Panera and we eat for about an hour and catch up, and then for about an hour we all bring independent things to work on, and we just get some work done. And so I know on those nights I kind of plan ahead, and so I already know. All right, I got to save some of my energy for writing work, so it really. I don't have a set thing, which as a planner is kind of annoying to me sometimes, but <laughs> I've just learned to roll with it. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like you have to really, um, when you have that much going on. Yeah. So you mentioned book three. Is that, yes. um, can you tell us about that? I'm very excited about this one too. Um, it does have a title now, but we're not sharing it quite yet. I want to wait just a little bit longer, but right. um, this story takes us back to Donegal, um, it, but it's a standalone story. So now we're in 1935, and it's set in a similar area as to the first book, but it's a little bit closer to Letterkenny, which is the main town that they visit in the first book. Um, but it follows the story of Brianna Kelly, who is um, an orphan. She's the lowest scholarly maid at a, a girl's boarding house just outside mm -hmm. the city. And she's the ward of the headmistress. Um, and the headmistress, it's its very much like a Cinderella type situation, but not really a Cinderella retelling. And she only has this shard of a necklace that's left from her family. It's the only connection she has. She has no idea who her real parents are or mm. what happened to them. And one day while she's there, the... Um, cousin of one of the boarding uh, students is sent to kind of come and keep an eye on her because she's causing problems. And so he bumps into Brianna by accident and um, his family is um, part of the ascendancy class of Letterkenny, which is the closest thing the Republic of Ireland had to um, like gentry. Um, and so his family sort of oversee Letterkenny and the, and the general area. So he's very much, upper class and she's lowest of the lowest class. And, um, right. it's just sort of her hunt for her own identity and her purpose. Cause she always has felt this, this sense that she was meant for something more, but she feels trapped and she doesn't really see a way out because, um, the headmistress has her under her thumb so much. And then he's trying to balance 
where he fits in the world because he's not sure how much he buys into what his family's supposed to be doing versus why is he here looking after his cousin. And so it's just, um, uh, mm. there's lots of thread of identity and, and purpose um, woven throughout that story. Mm, that sounds cool. Have you started, I'm just curious how far ahead you planned. Are, are you thinking about book four yet? Or is that not in the works yet? Um, I'm always thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, book three was my last book of my current contract. So okay. um, nothing official in the works, but I've definitely got several story ideas brainstorming. So when we're ready to start pitching again um, to my editor to see if she wants anything else. Um that I'll be ready to go. So lots of, lots of crazy ideas sticking around in Ireland for a little while. I think, um, yeah, I found people really, really enjoy that. So, um, right. yeah. And, and thinking lots of different time periods too. one story ideas during the potato famine. And one would be more continuing in the kind of late 19 teens, early twenties timeframe. Okay. So Yeah. Lots of ideas floating around up there. Right. Good. Um, yeah. And you seem to have that, that niche with the uh, Ireland angle. Mm. So that's, that's good. Yeah. People enjoy that. Yeah. So this is a question I ask all my guests and you answered it before when you were on the show, but you might have a different answer now. I don't know. <laughs> How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Um, goodness, I do remember answering that question, but I honestly have no idea what I said. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was that quote, and of course, I can't remember who originally said it, but those who um, basically, if you fail to remember history, you're doomed to repeat it. And right. so I think if we can look back at the lessons that there are to be learned in history, that it can help guide us to a better future whether that's just for ourselves personally or our family or our culture. Um, and I think we just gain a greater sense of empathy when we can see the world through other people's eyes, whether that's um, in different cultures and time periods, or just, you know, like Arizona in the wild West was might as well have been a different country. Um, yeah. So yeah, just those lessons of, of kind of getting outside of yourself and seeing the world through different eyes to build that, that empathy and sort of wisdom for moving forward. Right. Yeah, that's good. So Jen, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, probably the best way would be to visit my website. It's just jenniferdiebel.com. And of course, Diebel is a lovely, strange German name. So it's spelled <laughs> D-E-I-B-E-L. And um, there, there's all the information about my books. There's links to all of my social media. They can sign up for my newsletter that I send out about once a month. Um, my newsletter group gets all my title reveals, cover reveals first, all that kind of good stuff. They get the, the first breaking news. Um, right. And I'm most active on Instagram. That's where I tend to hang out the most. Um, but I, I love connecting with readers and connecting over books and stories. So I hope people come find me. Yeah, that's great. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Jen. I just think she's a delight and I love learning about Irish history. It's so fascinating. Isn't it appropriate that this releases on St. Patrick's Day? 
So happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Let me give you the rundown about where you can find everything and support me. So if you're not already following and subscribed to this podcast, please do that. Please leave a star rating and review. Also, you can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. There you can find links to Jennifer's books and her website and her social media and keep in touch with her. And you can also find links to more info about me, my Patreon account, where you can support the show and the other work that I do, and also get to our Facebook group, which you can join. You can also find that on Facebook just by searching Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. It's easy to find, and we'd love to have you there. Also, I have an Instagram page. Make sure you follow me on there, Historical Fiction Unpacked. I want to leave you today with an Irish blessing that seemed really appropriate considering the Clawdaw ring that Jennifer told us about. May your mornings bring joy and your evenings bring peace. May your troubles grow few as your blessings increase. May the saddest day of your future be no worse than the happiest day of your past. May your hands be forever clasped in friendship and your hearts joined forever in love. Your lives are very special and God has touched you in many ways. May his blessings rest upon you and fill all your coming days. So even though that's an Irish blessing for a wedding, it's what I wish for you, dear readers. So keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.